How you doing? In this extraordinary moment, how is your heart framing what is happening? Dr. Cornell West, who's been incredibly kind to me, said this incredible thing during the week that I want to help frame in such ways that we can get a sense of what the Holy Spirit is doing at this moment and how we can join God in what God is doing in bringing a liberating justice. He said, I thank God people are in the streets. Can you imagine this sort of lynching taking place in the streets and people are indifferent? People don't care. People are callous. If there were just a few people with a few signs. Dr. West's framing has so much echoes of how Dr. King would actually talk about the moments that he was living through. He talked about the kind of protests that they were involved in and the kind of huge backlash they were receiving. But the protest itself was like a scalpel that lanced a boil of the ugliness of the injustice and white supremacy that actually underlies the normal and the quote-unquote peace as people experience it. So let's not miss this moment. And one of the things that we could fall into to miss this moment is not paying attention to our own heart, what's happening for our own soul. In just a moment, you're about to hear an extraordinary little interview that our dear friend Chad Peacock um, from Peacock Visuals has put together into some beautiful short films that Inverse we're going to be sharing. They're all recorded at the Black Lives Matter rally here in Perth, Australia, connecting the dots of solidarity between the suffering in the US and the suffering here in Australia and how we can join in this work But four quick things before we do. Number one, generously, both Drew Hart and his publishers are offering his book that we're using for anti-racism and discipleship formation at the moment, The Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. So for the next 24 hours, that is offered for free. You know people who need this book. Please get in contact or find on our social media uh, details for how to get the book. And that's yet another gift um, uh, that Drew has generously given of his time and his work and his witness. Number two, we are conducting anti-racism and discipleship formation um, a couple of times a week. We're doing uh, both uh, book studies and listening circles with a process that was developed um, in in the prisons here in Western Australia uh, to help us deepen in becoming a listening people. Um, If that is of interest to you, Please, again, get in contact. Number three, pastorally, do you need somebody to listen to you? I know this is an odd thing to do at the start of a podcast is to potentially uh, open up for thousands of people to get in contact, but particularly if you're a person of colour, if you are struggling at the moment and feel isolated, you are not alone. You spend so much time listening to us. We are here to listen to you please don't hesitate to reach out. We will do our best to connect you to pastoral support um, in this liberating work that we're a part of um, locally for you. But don't stay in isolation. We can build a community across uh, um, the world to do this work together. Finally, our dear friend and Inverse listener who has an amazing podcast himself, Tony Chadwell, is offering um, free brief therapy for people who have suffered abuse um, and trauma 
at the protests recently. We're so thankful that so many of you are out on the streets, so many of you for the first time. Um, that is wonderful, that is beautiful, but it's also difficult. So if taking up your cross is causing the kind of scars that you're not sure what to do with at this moment, please, we are here for you. We need each other in this work. The beloved community is only witness to together. So let us be about making the kind of connections that we can be in this work for the long haul um, to the glory of a God who longs to bring a liberating justice at this time. So continue to fight the good nonviolent fight, the fight that does bring about a liberating justice. Thank you for your work and witness. Grace and peace. You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna. And this is Inverse. Today's voice from the streets comes from an amazing Noongar activist, Auntie Donna Nelson just before she powerfully addressed the Black Lives Matter protest in Perth. If you watch the documentary on Netflix called The 13th, around the 13th Amendment, around 95% of African-American men incarcerated have never exercised their right to procedural fairness or natural justice by taking it to a trial because, you know, obviously poverty is one of the, the most extreme barriers for them to be able to access that, that human right. That's no different to black people here. And they say, you know, plead guilty and, and wait for the mercy of the, of the court as opposed to being funded, resourced properly and adequately that they actually exercise their right to natural justice and procedural fairness by taking it to trial because they probably would get off and we wouldn't have the over-incarceration rates that we have of black people in this country. So if you can afford the wealthiest and the best lawyers, much like... Joyce Clark's murderer has got. He's got the best lawyer. The, the police union have funded that. What an atrocity that is to, you know, the, the family of this young woman who lost her life at the hands of a police officer who never saw the need to restrain her, use, use pepper spray or anything else, but to pull out a gun and actually shoot her. This is, this is the fear, and if things don't change, this is what's going to happen. I was driving back from Meriden because I've been up back home on country for the last long weekend. We just get through to Tamman and police spin around. They, they see my, one of my daughters because we're driving with a couple of, couple of cars. And then I watch them. As they get out of the car, the first thing they do is they put their hand on their gun. I'm like, are you insane? There were kids just driving a damn car and this is how police get out of the car. That's the stuff that needs to stop. And I think that's the demand that we need to say and we need to hold these people accountable. You don't pull up on 20-year-old kids and, and, and put your hand straight on your pistol. I think that's the sort of stuff that we, we need to really make aware what's happening for black people. So, you know, there's everybody's outraged by what's happening in the US, but nobody bats an eyelid here in Australia the way that Aboriginal people are treated. And our rates are worse than. Our population is less than. And so those challenges are, are huge for us as Aboriginal people in this country. I'm excited to introduce our next guest. Today we have Michael Ray Matthews. He brings over 30 years of leadership experience as a senior pastor, grassroots leader, psalmist, and community organizer. 
to his work as Deputy Director for Faith in Action, which was formerly PICO National Network. He is the host of the Prophetic Resistance Podcast, where he engages multi-faith leaders in conversations about cultivating communities of belonging and sacred resistance to injustice. Reverend Matthews is president of the Alliance of Baptists, a progressive movement for justice and healing, and co-editor of Trouble the Waters, a Christian resource for the work of racial justice. And so we welcome to the show, Michael Ray Matthews. The way, well, number one, thank you again for being on the show with us. We're just really delighted. And what we love to do is to just begin by having you uh, identify and read the passage that you have chosen for us. Certainly. And once again, thank you so much for the opportunity to come and share. Um, the text I'd like to read uh, from the New Revised Standard Version um, is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. Uh, verses one through seven. Hmm. And maybe I should be honest and read verse eight, even though I'm scared of verse eight. (laughs) When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Such a, I'm looking forward to um, you guiding us in conversation around that text. But before we get there, um, we love to just get to know our guests, and we believe that um, your story actually... Um, carries with it weights in terms of, you know, just experiences. So I would love to know, when do you first remember encountering the Jewish and Christian scriptures? What's that memory like for you? Yeah, there are lots of uh, little snippets that come to mind, uh, because I'm mindful that I was hearing the scripture before I knew it was scripture. I was learning the stories before I could see them inside of a Bible. They were on a flannel board. They were being uh-huh. told yeah. in, in <laughs> yeah. songs, in right, songs right. that my grandparents sang. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I've, I've been trying to remember, I have this image of uh, two Bibles. One, one Bible I had as a very little child, I think probably in the preschool, Sunday school. And it was this green Bible with a picture of a white Jesus on it. And it was mm-hmm. called a children's Bible. And it was full of all these pictures of the great stories that you learn about in a Sunday school. Right. It had the actual King James, you know, scriptures in it, but 
right. um, throughout there were these um, little images. inserts where you could look at the uh, at the images. The other one is a Bible that I, I happened to just find uh, today. I wasn't even looking for it. And it's probably the, it's probably the one I read the most as a little child. And it's, um, oh, I got that uh, virtual background on here, but it says, um, it says soul food. And it's, um, oh. it's this Bible that was, I guess, designed for the African-American community. Um, and uh, it was published in 1967, a year before I was born. And, and reprinted in 73 when I was probably in kindergarten. This was mm. probably given to me when I was probably in the third grade or something. And it's all these black people um, um, in the images and a, yeah. whole, a whole interpretation of the Bible as food for the soul, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but sort of written from the perspective of the African-American um, uh, experience. And oh. uh, I was really surprised that I, that I found this because it's all torn up and it's falling apart. Um, but this yeah. is probably my earliest memory of, uh, of having a Bible. Um, yeah. I had many Bibles as a child. And uh, yeah. well, this is, they, all, they all have a story to them, each of those Bibles. Mm. Right. Right. Well, that's, that's incredible. And I've never seen that um, either. So that's something quite special. Michael Ray, um, I'm excited about this next question because uh, I love your work in Witness. I draw so much encouragement from it. Um, uh, your life uh, has... Uh, you, you have set your face like Flint in terms of pursuing liberation and joining others and encouraging others to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, but was that always your experience of the scriptures? Um, if you were to locate along a timeline uh, or a spectrum of uh, oppressive to liberating, where would you situate your experience of the scriptures um, uh, uh, not just necessarily now, because I think anybody who knows your work knows clearly where, where, where you're at um, now, but in terms of those initial experiences, were they things that um, uh, clearly liberated or uh, was it uh, messier than that? We'd just love to, to hear you explore that some. Yeah, I think I was raised between, between two, um, you know, streams of, of, of Christian tradition. And mm -hmm. I was trying to navigate them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I am, I am, you know, a child and a grandchild of the great migration of African-Americans from the U.S. South to places in the northeastern part of the country, the Midwest and California. On my mom's side, it's, it's mostly folks who came from Georgia up to the Midwest, places like uh, Cleveland. Actually, my mother grew up not mm -hmm. far from where Otis Moss III grew up. Yeah. Um, yeah and um, Detroit and Chicago. And my father's people are from Louisiana. They're from Cajun country. Mm. And they left Louisiana, um, headed toward Cal towards California. Mm. And I, I share that story as a way of talking about one of the, uh, one of the streams that, I was, that shaped me is because I was really shaped by the black church tradition, but specifically a congregation in South Los Angeles, what we used to call South Central Los Angeles, mm -hmm. Uh, that was really a great migration church. It was really a church that was founded at the beginning of the great migration and really was made up of black folks, mostly coming from Texas and Louisiana, um, you know, um, not just looking for a better future, but also running away from Jim Crow, un mm -hmm. unaware that, unaware that Jim has cousins in LA, but um, <laughs> so they had, they had to deal with that reality once it got there. But um, I am a child of this historic, Black Baptist Church that, um, on the one hand, 
um, nurtured a robust relationship with God through Jesus. Mm. Um, and on the other hand, was aware um, in many ways, and sometimes not as fully aware, that it was trying to situate its understanding of a relationship with God, an understanding of faith, in the context of the Black experience, in the context of the Great Migration, um, in the context of what was happening for and to Black people um, in Los Angeles. Both those things that were positive, um, that were about uplift and achievement, um, and rising out of poverty and rising out of the civil rights movement, as well as those things that were about uh, disappointment um, and fear and danger. Um, mm. And so I was, I was raised as a Christian who understood himself as being a part of, of this tradition. Mm -hmm. um, but I was also at the same time um, educated from kindergarten through eighth grade in private Christian schools. Not, okay. not a Catholic school, but, but right. private Christian schools run by the Assemblies of God, run by the mm. Four Square Church, run right. by the Lutheran Church, and I, I'm assuming Missouri Synod, um, okay. and, 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 um, and by the Calvary Chapel Movement, um, oh, okay. which was an evangelical, uh, sort of like proto-evangelical movement. I think the Vineyard has a lot of uh, uh, people who had roots in the Calvary Chapel Movement. Oh. Um, my call to ministry came in the context of going to the, um, the Calvary Chapel Christian School in, in Downey, California. No way. Um, so, and that, that experience was one that really emphasized um, a personal relationship with Jesus, hmm. uh, that really emphasized um, a, a contrast between sort of the ways of the world and the ways of, of those who are disciples of Jesus. Hmm. Um, it was also one that really emphasized a way of being in the world that, um, that didn't look like the people that were raising me, right. um, right. didn't look right. like the church that was raising me. Huh. Um, and so I grew up with a lot of, uh, I grew up trying to reconcile that all the time and, hmm. um, not really allowing myself to be troubled by it like be aware of how troubled I was about trying to make all this happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but I definitely was trying to reconcile. Um, they were preaching the same Jesus. At least I thought they were, I would say differently today, but they're preaching mm -hmm. the same Jesus. We were singing some songs that were similar, although the white folks were singing some songs that were very different right. than some of the songs that my grandmama sang. Right. Um, and <laughs> emphasis on a different beat, but same song. <laughs> absolutely different song. <laughs> I would go to school and it's like, I don't understand why, why, why are you doing the wrong? this? This is the wrong, like it's two and four, it's not one and three feet. Um, <laughs> but it, it really was this, it really was this interesting mix, like through, through kindergarten, through middle school, um, a lot of my, a lot of discipleship happened in the white private Christian school context. I was being yeah. very deliberately discipled. I was being nurtured. I was ch chosen to be a chaplain in the seventh grade to serve students in the school, to lead chapel. I discerned my call to ministry in the context of those schools. Yeah. Um, of course, when I discerned my call to ministry, I didn't go to the principal of the school and tell him that. I actually went to my home church right. and told my of people. Of course. Um, yep. And, you know, the whole church went up and I had a much bigger Afro than I do today. <laughs> um, 
And folks were so happy that this young man had decided he was going to be a preacher. He was going to be a, a minister um, of, of the gospel. So it really wasn't until um, college and seminary that I uh, began to really wrestle with these traditions that I had inherited and that I had been navigating mm. and had to ask myself a different set of questions about uh, what my faith was really about and who mm. I wanted to be in the world and, and what I felt God was calling me uh, yeah. to be I think for those of us who listen to um, uh, Prophetic Resistance podcast or, or know of your work leading Faith in Action um, uh, might be uh, surprised to hear the roots. My only experience of um, Calvary Chapel, or at least my, my first experience of Calvary Chapel, uh, was when I was arrested um, by a, a US military police while interrupting uh, American-Australian joint war games um, wow. uh, training for the war in Iraq. Uh, wow. So somebody who for over an hour held an M16 pointed at me um, and uh, as a way of de-escalating, um, trying to um, engage uh, them in what we're doing. So we're reading the names of those who have been killed in Iraq, both um, uh, Iraqi, um, uh, Australian and American names that, of those who have been um, killed in war um, at, at, as a prayer uh, and as a way of de-escalating, um, trying to engage them like uh, are you people of faith. And, and the guy holding um, this M16 at, at me uh, uh, says, yes, I'll go to Calvary Chapel. <laughs> I was like, oh, tell me about Calvary. So when, when I, I ended up in solitary confinement um, when they arrested us, but once uh, we got out, um, one of the first things that I was Googling is what's Calvary Chapel and uh, um, to find that, but a, a real emphasis on um, God can change lives. God can change your life, the, the life that where it is at the moment, that it can be turned upside down. Um, and so that, that's fascinating um, that the, the immediacy of the power of God for changing people's stories, but maybe not changing society was yes. one of the streams that, um, uh, was in your story while also being part of, uh, you know, the great migration and the black church has expressed itself in what used to be called South central. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and that vision that, um, uh, you know, uh, God can change, um, society and those things coming together is, is amazing. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was, um, I was introduced, uh, to the idea of having, a powerful, you know, personal relationship with Jesus in the Calvary Chapel context. And mm. that experience did a lot to help me embrace a call to ministry. Beautiful. Um, but I, I realized when it was time, when, when I was in college and when I was in seminary, that there was, there was something a little missing <laughs> for me yeah. about that. That didn't, re that didn't reckon with other aspects of my, of my life and and identity um when i was in when i was in seminary i was introduced to liberation theology by my theology professor dr george cummings mm -hmm. and i wrote a paper for his class and it was my final paper and and the, the 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 paper was about whether i was examining whether or not black liberation theology was an actual practice or really existed in the life of the church that raised me and in the oh, yeah. life of other African-American Baptist congregations in the, LA, in the LA area. 
So I had this ambitious plan that I was going to interview all these pastors of the, of the big black churches in LA, all the sister churches, the one that I grew up in and ask them like, does black liberation theology really, you know, live here? Cause I never heard about this until I got to seminary. So what's up? Hmm. And, um, <laughs> I, um, I interviewed the I interviewed the um, the pastor of my childhood who by then was retired, um, and the pastor during my high school years who had at that point moved on to another post in North Carolina, and I, when I told um, Dr. Elliot J. Mason Sr. Um, of Trinity Baptist Church that my my the premise of my paper was that Black liberation theology did not exist at Trinity Baptist Church, he was livid. Um, <laughs> wow. This is. This man is like, he's, he's passed on now, but this man was like salt of the earth, um, yeah. a, a sweet, sweet, sweet spirit. Um, anybody who knew him would tell you that this is a man who just regularly prayed for clergy all the time. Yeah. He would call you and say, I'm praying for you. He, mm-hmm. he just has such a gentle, gentle way about yeah. him, but he was very upset with me. And I told him, I said, you know, Dr. Mason, what was very clear for me as a child, and I was a nerdy church kid with, you know, paper and pen taking notes during sermons, right? (laughs) Um, And I said, what I remember is that you told us that we had to be naked before God, that we had to be broken before God. Like this emphasis about a deep relationship with God through Jesus was was a real theme that I picked up out Mm. out of his preaching and teaching. Um, and this idea of being broken before God and being naked before God was a thing that just it really stuck with me as a riff that he would take on a lot in his preaching. Mm-hmm. And he said, but don't you realize that liberation theology begins with the brokenness? It mm-hmm. begins with the brokenheartedness of, of, the, of the broken hearts of the world. And he began to sort of like from that, you know, almost like, you know, Philip in the eunuch, like from there, he, mm-hmm. you know, helped me understand how right. Black liberation theology was indeed um, a, um, a tradition that informed his ministry, his vision, and the work of the church. And he reminded me, like, you know, the third Bible that I ever received, the Revised Standard Version Bible, mm-hmm. my first Bible that had that play leather cover on it. Um, if you open it up, one of the, there's a signature in it, and it's the signature of Dr. E- um, um, Benjamin Elijah Mays. Whoa! Um, Wow. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. He re- in, he um, like, so for, for those who don't know the tradition of um, Morehouse uh, College and that um, uh, Martin Luther King uh, went there, would you ex- explain uh, maybe particularly to the Australians um, the significance of the name that you just uh, Well, it's on? just that he was a particular sort of pastoral and, and pastor and mentor to so many who attended that school, to so many who were significant leaders within the civil rights movement, within, within black right. liberation yeah. um, um, uh, practice within, within, the tri- within the Christian tradition. And he was very old um, mm. when he came to my church and it was a big deal to sit um, at his feet and listen oh, yeah. to him as this young nerdy church kid. Um, and the, you know, Dr. Mason reminded me that I met Oliver Tambo and Alan mm. Busak and all wow. of these South African freedom yeah. fighters at my yeah. church. And he's like, how are you, how are you going yeah. to sit here and tell me <laughs> that you were raised in a church where you met these people? In fact, Dr. Cummings, your theology professor, a black liberation theologian himself, was a member of this church before he moved to the Bay Area. You sat behind him in church. How can you say, right, yeah. 
And it was largely because there was a way in which the, they were two different streams and they were, they were framed and taught in a certain kind of way. The yeah. experiences with, Benji, with Dr. Mays and with Oliver Tambo and with Alan Busak and with other South African freedom fighters and with other politicians and activists in the community, they were the things that I experienced um, in the afternoon program of the church, hmm. not the things I experienced in the context of worship. So uh, Dr. Mason had to explain mm. to me, and I'll, I'll try to be short on this. He tried to explain to me how he was navigating um, a congregation that on the one hand had lived through the civil rights movement, was made mm-hmm. up of a whole bunch of people who um, had, had earned their cred right. and had, had, had reaped the benefits of the movement where college graduates and were getting corporate jobs in Los Angeles. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, they were, they were, they, they were the, the, uh, the product of, of this big dream of the ancestors. Yeah. And so the, on the one hand, we're black and we know that we're black and we know that that's, that that's our story. On the other hand, they're also being influenced by all these televangelists who are preaching a much more individualized mm-hmm. idea of what faith is about. And, and Michael Ray, this would have been uh, what the, the 80s? 70s. This would have been, so I was born in 68. Uh-huh. So, you know, yeah, so I met Dr. Mays in the 70s. So, mm. and this, the, the, yeah, it's the 70s and the 80s. So the yeah, 70s well. and 80s. Yeah. And he said, I had to figure out how to preach that personal relationship with Jesus frame mm. that so many were hungry for and interested in that really was the message that was being preached in the market, my mm-hmm. words, the market, um, while also still bringing um, into that conversation uh, this notion of this rich history that is ours, this rich tradition that is ours, um, to stand in the world in a way that suggests that the Christian life is also about your practice in the real world, your practice in social life. Um, He reminded me of all the social action committees of the church, and Mm. I finally said, okay, I'm sorry that I started with this premise. when I when I called when I called his predecessor, who was my pastor, um, 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 and during high school, and who had been his assistant, and I told him what the premise was, he just fell out laughing. He said, "You were in trouble. I know you got in trouble with that one." Um, and he went on to explain, like you know, you know, this the 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 tension between sort of middle class, black middle class aspirations, right, right. and a sort of black liber liberatory struggle mm-hmm. um, was really what I was living between yeah. just in the context of that church, mm-hmm. let alone, let alone the experiences I was having in the school setting, which were completely mm-hmm. devoid of liberation and blackness. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, like the idea of what it meant to be a Christian was to pretty much be white. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's wow. That's, that's fascinating. And I'm Michael Wright. Often when people start listening to Inverse um, and uh, they're asking questions about um, the the influence that uh, not only the peace church tradition, but the prophetic black church tradition is, people will sometimes, particularly in the Australian setting, uh, say things like, um, well, I listen to T.D. Jakes. And uh, there's no doubt for me that um, T.D. Jakes, you know, um, his uh, style of preaching is deeply um, it, it's it's the black church. He's a he's a phenomenal communicator, like uh, uh, un, unbelievable uh, preacher. Uh, and yet, um, the the substance um, isn't 
are, are quite the same as, uh, or, or you know, e even people it's like generous. Steve Furtick, right? Um, uh, there, there is a deep sense that he's been influenced um, by uh, black church preaching um, in style, but when it comes to to substance, that um, uh, it, it, it's not there in, in the same way. I'm I'm fascinated as you tell this story that uh, that was a wrestle um, in the places that were involved in the freedom movement and um, a, a, in the popular imagination when uh, people thought that maybe the civil rights movement had had done its work. Um, uh, um, Brother Martin's no longer uh, with us. There were real things that were won. Uh, there were opportunities opening up for people um, uh, uh, to, to express uh, what had been uh, fought for in their own lives. And to hear that wrestle um, is, is fascinating and even um, uh, th that picture of a young you in front of your pastor um, trying to bring those things to, together, I think um, is a beautiful picture uh, of that. I, I know Drew is about to um, uh, lead us into more of your own story, but I would really love to hear that question of um, style and substance, as Cornel West um, would put it. Um, uh, for you, as you think about the prophetic black church tradition, um, what is the substance that um, uh, are necessary ingredients for it to um, uh, continue that legacy and that power um, uh, aside from a particular um, a style that has come out of um, uh, at the South and migrated to whether it be Cleveland or Chicago or uh, central LA or, or whatever, how would you put your finger on what, what that is? Yeah. What comes to mind is um, the way that um, I teach about the way that race and the oppression of difference operates hmm. in the world. And this is something that I'm borrowing from the group visions that does a lot of, sort of race, diversity, multiculturalism training out of Roxbury, mm -hmm. Massachusetts, just giving credit where it's due. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they talk about how, they talk about how the oppression of difference happens at, at four levels. It happens sort of at the intrapersonal level, like, mm -hmm. you know, inside of us, right? Yeah. So, you know, so racism, racism is about the implicit bias, those, those things that, that are in us, it, 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 it operates in us. Mm. Uh, but it also operates at the interpersonal level, like it operates between people, mm -hmm. operates in relationships, you know, and, and defines the quality of those relationships, or even whether or not they even exist, right? Mm. So, um, and then it also operates at a sort of structural or institutional level, like it's embedded in institutions, in practices, in policies, um, with, within institutions. And it operates in the culture in ways that are largely invisible, but you somehow... Sometimes you can see them, they're palpable, you, you, you can feel it in the air, it's, 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 it's what we breathe, it's like how we determine who belongs and who's telling the truth and what beauty is. Mm. Um, and the reason, that I, uh, the reason that frame comes to mind when you ask that question is I think that the, um, the prophetic black church tradition is asking about the relevance of the gospel message at all of those levels. Yes, yeah, well, that's beautifully put. Right, because what I what I learned about being a Christian um, in the white private Christian school, um, and sometimes even in the preaching that I heard in my home church, hmm. despite 
the protest of my pastor when I told him <laughs> the premise, um, was that this was all about me and JC. It was all mm -hmm. about me and Jesus Christ mm -hmm. and all about whether or not I knew how to treat you well and whether or not you were treating me well. And that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, and um, and you it's know, not that that's not genuine, but it stops there. It, it stops there. Like once you yep. go past there, now you're getting political, right? You're uh -huh. getting political uh -huh. because yeah. it just gets messier. It gets messier yeah. once you go there. Um, right. It also becomes like a mirror because like once, like once people start talking about what's happening in institutions and in structures and in systems, most of us who are doing the studying of the scriptures and who are preaching these scriptures are in charge of institutions and structures and systems. <laughs> we're all complicit then. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, what are we going to do? Yeah. So, we're on the payroll. The, you know, so we want to have impact on the culture. We definitely want to have impact on the culture, but our, but our method is about this super hyper-individualized uh, packaging of, of the faith. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, even with, even with T.D. Jakes, I remember in, in my 20s, I had listened to a lot of T.D. Jakes. This is before, mm. I remember there was a time when he said he wouldn't even sell tapes. And so I used to skip bootleg tapes of him. Uh -huh. And um, I loved the way he preached. And oh, I yeah. loved, I like a lot of his sermons were sermons that I felt like brought you to the altar, mm. brought you to that place of being broken before God, brought you to that place of being naked before God, the woman thou art loose. One of my mm. favorite texts. I, that was another text I could have brought into this conversation. Mm. Right. Um, yeah. And so, um, but but it, but it doesn't. The prophetic tradition like takes the goes deeper than that. It takes the next yeah. step and yeah. asks how all these things are connected. How is the intra, inter, institutional, and cultural? How are they all connected to one another? Yeah. What does the gospel have to say to all all of that? All of those things that make up um, who we are in our experience. In the world. Mm, yeah, thank good. you. That's good. Yeah, that's good. So hearing you talk, I mean, you've shared quite a bit about your own story, your own engagement with scripture and the complex ways in which you saw that played out even in your own church. Um, so one of the things that we recognize is that all of us, we all, um, each, all of our stories provide us with a particular lens, right? Mm. And so we would love to hear you express like what from your own experience and lens would you share with listeners as it relates to engaging scripture and interpreting scripture? Hmm. Well, I feel like there is, I feel like the way that I approach scripture, it has been um, a bit of a quilt. Like I've been like borrowing hmm. from a number of different ways of engaging in the study yeah, of the text yeah. and the preaching of the text. Mm -hmm. um, like, so like from my like from my evangelical roots if you will i don't yeah. always claim to have evangelical roots but as much time as i spent in some of those schools i have evangelical roots right yeah it, it um, used to not be a swear word it used to actually refer to a tradition <laughs> right. that was involved in the abolitionist movement and the child exactly. rights movement and yeah i would have had no idea about that uh, right. growing, up in, growing up in those schools um, <laughs> I've, I've only learned that um, in, in, in later life. But, you know, I don't know if you remember, InterVarsity used to have this manuscript study approach to the scripture. Like you would have, you would print out, you would, they would have printouts of the scripture in, in double space. Hmm. And um, you would take the scripture as a worksheet and you would take a colored pencil 
different colored pencils and you would circle all the repeated words and underlying words you didn't understand. And there were all these little things you would do and okay. um, on, on this on this worksheet. And it was a way of like doing inductive Bible study. And so you yeah, would yeah, you would yeah. engage in a set of observations about what you see, questions about the words, wondering about like how many times it's, you know, using Strong's concordance and like just mm. having this really rich and in-depth um, approach to to the to the scriptures. Now, the interpretation. Ray, uh, Lisa sure. Sharon Harper said this um, process with intervarsity revolutionized her life. Uh, I believe that. Yeah, I Lisa that. said th this for her was um, uh, what transformed everything. Well, Lisa and I are both like Bible nerds, so yeah. I, I can <laughs> see how she. I mean, I was a kid taking notes in church, right? As yeah, a right, kid right, taking right, notes right, in church, so. This was exciting for me, and mm. the interpretation work didn't go, you know, past the the, the personal. Um, even though here we are trying to understand the sort of social historical context of these stories that we're reading, we didn't often try to figure out like what that meant for this social historical context. Uh -huh. right. Right. Um, right. Exactly. But I still find myself, you know, when I have time and I'm being asked to preach, I said, let me let me create my little manuscript Bible study. Yeah, wow. and, you know, yeah. and spend time with this text. So I borrow from that, but I also borrow from traditions I've been exposed to, um, you know, mostly in, in the seminary and post-seminary context. So uh, a lot of the Lectio Divina mm -hmm. uh, yeah. traditions, yeah, Exabit yeah, yeah, traditions yeah. Out, out of the Ignatian, out yeah, of the Ignatian yeah. spirituality. And so yeah. there are times when um, I might begin with just a Lectio Divina of a text um, and then go to the worksheet. Right, just yeah. allow allow the text to wash over me. Allow myself yeah. allow myself to sort of live with the text as mm -hmm. a lens through which I walk in the world. Um, yeah. When I was a preacher, when I was a you know a pastor of a congregation, and I had to preach every Sunday, it was wonderful. Like on on Monday to open that text and to say for the rest of this week till Friday, I am just going to like look at the world through the lens of this text and allow mm. this text to speak to me and to inform and, and to inform my understanding. Um, but I would also say that um, I also bring to my study of the scripture um, a lens that's really focused on what we might call story or narrative theology, mm -hmm. like really paying attention to, to metaphor, really paying attention to um, what, what the story is trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, and it's not just the story in the text, it's, it's also the story of the text mm -hmm. um, and the story of the people um, who are reading the text, right? Mm. And the story of the one who has to preach the text, uh -huh. me, right? Yeah. I'm realizing I'm, I'm pointing, but no one can hear that. So, <laughs> <laughs> me. <laughs> and so um, I, I think I bring all of those things. I mean, I, I have this interesting way that I approach the text and I'm, I'm realizing that I'm really borrowing from a number of different approaches that have informed me over the course, over the course of my life. Mm. Yeah, I resonate with that a lot. I mean, I feel like so often in my life, I, I feel like it's often been a borrowing, right, of these different traditions and communities mm -hmm. that have shaped me. Some of them, I mean, I, I know a lot of people think of me in terms of like black church, black theology stuff and Anabaptism stuff, right? And which is just, but they're actual living communities that have actually shaped me and mm -hmm. seeing how these different communities have engaged the scriptures and the different emphases and how they, you know, I, it was um, in Philly, as you're talking about like Lectio Divina, like I was a part of this, um, it was called Kingdom Builders Networks. 
So mm-hmm. pastors in the Philly network. Um, and it's like black and Latino, like Mennonites and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, but when we would gather monthly, you know, they would do a, like a lecture of Divina and we call it dwelling in the word, right? Mm-hmm. They read it multiple times from different traditions. Then we go right. out we discussing groups together and mm-hmm. we would come back. And that was never how I had experienced it in the black church. And so this was kind of, but it just became a part of my practice over time, you yes. know? And so like, I resonate with you in terms of the borrowing, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. really beautiful. Oh, yeah, incredible. I, I've, I've, I've shared that with my, with, with my extended family, with my mother and my, and my sister and my niece, when, when we're all together, my wife and my son and I with them. And um, I've gotten to a place now where my, my mom will say, you know, do that thing you do where you read it, where you read the text a whole bunch of times. Uh, <laughs> That's <laughs> so, amazing. It's called, yeah. called Lectio, Lectio Divina. Yeah. That's incredible. And I think, um, I mean, w- with the Prophetic Resistance podcast, um, uh, y- you know what goes into um, uh, these interviews. So I'm aware, Michael Ray, that you've looked under the hood and um, uh, like in, in terms of the, the workings of this podcast, um, that's our heart around it, right? Is how do we bring uh, an integral approach where, as you described, um, uh, all those different levels are actually, uh, um, that the gospel is being good news for all of those things. Because uh, I, I don't doubt that um, that fella who held that gun um, and engaged me in conversation, um, and I might see if I can find you a link to the documentary that um, uh, Tony Campolo to uh, launched it about that whole um, incident. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't doubt that the transformation was real for him in terms of those first two levels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that Jesus had set um, him free from uh, whether it's selfishness or addictions or um, uh, to, to live a life uh, for others. And that was seeking to express itself in the US military uh, while they engaged in an illegal war. Um, and, and that's some of the, the complexities, but practices of um, wh- whether it's um, uh, Lectio or, or whether it's um, going back to uh, those processes that Felisa and yourself were so as we kind of um, uh, ask what are the implications for everything, um, uh, that's the space that I I know um, on your podcast and here as well, we like to play in and and the importance of actually bringing it to a a particular text. So when you chose a a text such as this, uh, maybe like uh, uh, those um, are gathered there, there's a bit of uh, trembling and bewilderment or um, uh, terror and amazement that this is the text you've gone to, right? Because yeah. uh, um, uh, at, at all these different levels, this is a text which um, uh, doesn't leave you in a safe space. So we would love it um, with all that in mind, if, if you would now take us um, to Mark 16 and actually walk us through how this particular text um, can turn our world upside down. Yeah. So I chose this text um, and I really struggled with it because I wanted to find a nice tight, you know, pericope, a nice tight, you know, <laughs> you know set of scriptures that would um, be familiar. And like, here's, here's, what, here's what the text did for me. And, um, you know, I, I think I already told you is in, in leading up to this time that the text I really want to talk about was one that's already been discussed this season uh, with the parable of the talents. Um, but um, really, like, if I really told the truth about the text I wanted to bring to this conversation today, it's not really Mark 16, 1 through 7 or 1 through 8. 
is really the entire gospel of Mark. Yeah, well. Um, because the entire gospel of Mark turned my world upside down. Mm. Um, wow. And it did this in 2015. Hmm. So um, as you may know uh, from the podcast and other places that our organization, Faith in Action, partnered with a number of our uh, uh, friends in the Ferguson um, uh, region yeah. in St. Louis County um, during the uprising. And I was there, I was, I was there four different weeks um, from August through November. And it was a, you know, it was a traumatizing experience. Sure. Um, it was a life-changing experience too. And um, I'll never forget it. I'm, and I have such gratitude for, for the experience and for the friendships um, that were forged in that time. Um, but, when, but coming into the new year, January, 2015, uh, one of the, one of the one of the real challenges I was having is that I, I had so much uh, trauma around this and I could see mm. so clearly the dragon of white supremacy mm. that um, all of my preaching and speaking and teaching were, were really shaped by that. You know, I was preaching out of Revelation, the, the you know, the dragon that swoops down to mm. eat the child, you know, before before it's even born. Um, I was, you know, that was my first sermon, you know, 2015. Wow. And I was invited um, a few months later by a colleague in Indianapolis to come and preach on Easter Sunday. Now, mm -hmm. first of all, what pastor gets up their pulpit on Easter Sunday? On Easter, right, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but there it was, I got this invitation and, and it turned out to be nice because my, my son had been accepted to uh, a couple universities in, in, the, in the state and we were going to oh. visit them. Um, and so we just made it a whole, a whole trip. And mm. uh, so my son, my son accompanied me on this trip and I accompanied him on his college visit trip. And um, I had a problem though, because um, on Monday Thursday, I realized I still didn't know what I was going to preach. Mm. And I kept reading all these, you know, texts of the resurrection and trying to figure out like how to get in it. And the only theme living in my soul was crucifixion. Like I am wow. just so yeah. not ready for resurrection today. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how to preach it. And I'm going to ruin Easter for these people in this church. <laughs> for everybody. You know? Yeah. Like, you know? I'm going to be like the soup guy in Seinfeld. No Easter for you. <laughs> people are dying. Black people are dying. No Easter. Um, and so I, I call a friend of mine and he just, he's just good at talking me down off of, off of, uh, off cliffs. And, um, you know, he said, just calm down and, you know, what, what are your resources? And I decided to go back and read this text. And, you know, I had already, I had already decided at the beginning of the year that I was just going to read the gospel of Mark. It was already the gospel that was the focus of the revised common lectionary for mm. that year. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I'm just going to, you know, I used, this is what I used to do when I was a preacher all the time, every Sunday. So I'm just going to read Mark. And when I'm done reading it, I'll just start reading it again. So I was probably in my fourth or fifth read by the time Easter came around. And I said, mm -hmm. just, just, since you've been reading Mark, just be faithful to Mark. And how does mm -hmm. Mark tell the resurrection story? And so I read this story and my eyes go to the part where the writer is saying that the messenger tells the women he's not in here. Mm -hmm. And I started to remember my experience during the Ferguson uprising, the experience mm -hmm. of our network um, conducting a series of conference calls, pre-Zoom conference calls mm -hmm. um, with 
hundreds of clergy across the country who were trying to navigate all the Fergusons that were happening all over the United States in that season and trying to figure out what do we do? And my colleague, Reverend Michael McBride, who leads our Live Free work, Uh um, was was leading these calls and he was developing toolkits to help clergy figure out how to preach and teach in this moment and, and what to do. And despite all of these resources that he was helping to develop and get out to folks, the common question on these calls, and by the third or fourth call, he was exasperated, was, what do we do? What do we do? And he finally said, you know what? Just go outside. Just, just go outside. Like, if you go outside and get in the streets with these young people, if you listen to what they're talking about, yes. if you listen to their stories, you will know what to do. Go outside. And that, it was Mike's voice that I could hear as I was looking at that text. And I was like, the angel is telling these women that he's not in here. Mm-hmm. He's gone on to Galilee, go outside. Right. Mm. And then I began to remember that in my reading and rereading of the gospel of Mark, almost everything happens outside. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it's not just that almost everything happens outside, but when something happens inside, it's almost as if the narrator of Mark is a stage, a stage director and has written like stage directions in the scripture, because it always says Jesus entered the house of Simon's mother-in-law. Jesus entered the temple. Jesus entered the synagogue. Hmm. So, it's like, this is special. Like this, like, you know, hold on. We've been outside all this time. But for, for, for this little story, we're going to go inside for this story. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're back outside. And in mm-hmm. fact, everything that happened inside has consequences for what happens in the outside world. Wow. So it was really that theme, that, that sort of meta theme, that sort of meta reading of the text that really sort of turned things upside down for me because I began to realize, oh, this is the public theology that you have been trying to practice and articulate and get your head and your heart wrapped around, not only as a community organizer, but as, um, as a disciple of Jesus, Mm -hmm. right. And as a, and as a preacher of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up, you know, preaching a sermon called he ain't here, go outside. Oh, all right. He ain't here, go outside. And I, I preached this sermon, you know, basically trying to break down this text. And I confess, like, I, didn't, I was going to ruin y'all's Easter because I didn't have no resurrection for y'all. And, you know, because Ferguson, you know, Ferguson messed me up. And, you know, I'm still processing. Um, and God's still talking to me. But, and God's telling me, you know, fight back, fight back. God's telling me, you know, Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter. God's mm-hmm. telling me, pay attention to the pain. So I got something to preach. It's just not, I didn't think it was Easter, right? And it all of a sudden became Easter and resurrection when I realized that once again, even on resurrection day, God kept pointing the people outside. Mm-hmm. And, so I'm, and so the big question I kept asking was like, what does it mean that we follow a savior who did most of his work outside, mm-hmm. yet we do most of church inside mm. we say jesus is risen and yet we've entombed him inside the four walls of our congregations yeah and we have no imagination for what it looks like yeah. outside of carrying tracks and, and holding signs of what mm. it looks like to practice this faith 
outside. Mm. And so that was, that was my, my, my big message. And I, I think I even shared the story of um, just to Tracy Blackman uh, yeah. telling, us about, telling us about how the clergy, were, some of the clergy in Ferguson, the Ferguson area were trying to make sense of, of who they were seeing in these streets. And she said that one, one clergy observed that these are the children these children are the children and grandchildren of mothers that our churches, our black churches rejected, right? Wow. Which is the power, which is the power of that very individualized way of understanding uh, the gospel. Mm. Um, and then another clergy said, well, what can we do to get these young people back into our churches? And her retort mm. was, you know, um, they're making church for themselves in these streets. Yes. And then she said, they don't need our walls. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, I asked the church, I said, so if, if the young people in our communities who are, who are feeling so much pain right now don't need the walls of the Christian church, then my question to the Christian church is, do we even need our walls? Come on. So what does it mean for us to go outside? Mm. Now, I was telling somebody this week that I was going to share this story with y'all, and I was like, it's kind of hard for me talking about going outside when right, right now we're trying to get everybody to stay inside. But, mm. but in, some ways, in some ways it still holds in that, like, the big fight last week was about whether or That's not right. people you know, right. had to be inside their congregations. And, like, yes. the only way we can access the holy is to be inside these buildings. And right. The very story of the person who we worship mm. says that ain't even true. Yeah. In fact, yeah. every time he went inside, he got in trouble. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so stay your behind outside. Yes. That's where God is about. That's where God's about doing things. That's where I you know. have to deal with more than the intrapersonal, more yep. than the interpersonal. You have yep. to deal with the institutional, the structural, the systemic. You have to deal with the cultural. Uh -huh. And you have to see how all of those things shape all of who you are and all of what yeah. God is calling you to do and to be. Yes. That's right. And so That's this is a text that definitely turned things upside down for me. And it's really driven like um, a passion that I have now for talking about this work as a practice of public theology mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, and all the development of the theology of resistance and the prophetic resistance podcast really yes. came out of, out of out of a moment like that out of that out of that moment plus another yeah. moment with with walter brueggemann like a month later but wow. um that's that's really the seed of the prophetic resistance podcast is me figuring out that this is all about a theology that's lived in public yes yeah, yeah that's incredible yeah. that the jesus is outside or uh, and then i'm going to get in trouble for for doing this because uh you're not supposed to jump between synoptics but uh, another angel in another setting uh, why do you seek the living with the dead um, I, I think of Pastor Tracy Blackman and her, her um, clap back, her, her critique, um, her, her correction uh, to how do we get them in church. It's like, actually, how do we get the church out in the streets where the Holy right. Spirit is doing what the Holy Spirit does? Um, right. And will we miss this moment? I, you know, th that is so pertinent in this context where in your country you have imperial decrees um, that the church is essential. Um, but what is uh, essential is let, let's go hang in the places where God has been. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> of, course the, of course the church is essential, but, but four walls were never part of the early church's package. Like that, that's, 
um, whether it be by riversides or under trees or in, in people's homes um, or, or in the streets, it's very different. To, um, uh, sanctuaries should be safe places, but not places that are safe from the Holy Spirit. Yeah, in a moment like, in a moment like that, where um, the leader of this nation uses you know, religious right. communities mm -hmm. in this, this way. Right it's like, yeah. this is a prime example of how empire co-ops religion. Yes. And so anytime, like anytime empire is telling me to go to church, <laughs> I ain't going to church. Right. It's the moment to resist, right? <laughs> yeah. You know yeah. something's wrong. I yep. I ain't going to church. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I know, yeah. I know where church is and I yeah. know what church is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I know who church is. Yes, yeah. I do find fascinating the um, uh, the, the trembling, trembling and bewilderment, um, and and not to take away because. Oh, um, see now you're going to go after that verse I said I didn't want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> but, but Michael Ray, like in in terms of your trauma, um, as you followed Jesus out into the place. Uh, where you have a proximity to the pain where you can not only hear the cries, um, but cry those cries with those who are crying. Um, there is, there is a sense of trauma. Yes, um, yes. And what I found so incredibly powerful uh, about your sermon and your process and you actually giving us a behind the scenes director, director's cut of the, the mm -hmm. um, what goes on in the preacher's soul before they get in the pulpit, which so many people mm -hmm. never have access to um, mm -hmm. uh, unless uh, people have the painful experience of uh, uh, sharing the house of somebody who was called to preach and, and that lead up week that <laughs> how, how things can uh, um, uh, sometimes focus and, and revolve and rotate all, all around uh, um, pr preparation for that. Um, but in bringing us into that, you you mentioned your, your own very real trauma. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so often preaching about Easter preaching, uh, resurrection preaching can preach escapism instead of transformation. Um, it, it can yeah. fall into a, a Gnostic hope of avoiding everything God wants to transform. Um, it, it can be a, an escapist, a nice neat bow to wrap up a, a, a very ugly incident as if uh, mm -hmm. the cross doesn't really matter and the resurrection is just the happy ending um, instead of sitting in a, a devastation that does send you out into the places where people are hurting and people are bleeding yes. we're having this conversation in the context of um, minneapolis's um uh you know, on fire but things have been burning in your nation mm -hmm. the whole time the whole, like, oh, I was going to, where do I start this? Like, um, but it's, uh, would you talk to um, what it is to, to walk through the places where resurrection um, does traumatise us with a new world while we're living through a very broken world? Yeah. When you were just talking about the fires, it, I, I, have you ever in, talked to Tracy Blackman on this podcast? Uh, Tracy's a dear friend and she's been so kind to me and we haven't had her on. We, we talked when I talked with her in 2016 um, and we were in a Denny's, which won't mean anything for Americans, but for Australians, it's really funny. We don't have Denny's and it's such an American kind of, and uh, we were sitting um, in a Denny's and I was telling about, and she, about uh, wanting to do this. And she was like, um, yeah, this, this sounds um, great. I'd love to be on and everything. So I do need to follow that up. Yeah. Um, she is well, I just don't want to, 
And she actually spoke, you know, for my PhD um, graduation, she was our speaker. That was at Lutheran oh, was she? Seminary, Philadelphia in 2016. Yeah, she was our speaker. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just mindful that I often repeat her and I don't want to take all her stuff for when she might yeah. have her. Steal <laughs> <laughs> all her thunder. She's worth she, quoting. But she's, she's preaching. She's preaching. When we were talking, yeah, we were talking about the fire. She preached a sermon about uh, the burning bush. And she said, there are burning bushes everywhere. And the question is, will anybody turn aside to see? You know mm-hmm. what, what is happening with the with the bush, and I, I think I think that's the I think that is the real the real challenge of this of this moment. Um, I mean, I have to confess that even within my even within myself, um, I didn't want to go to Ferguson, and I didn't want to go back the second, third, and fourth time. Um, and every time I went, I was transformed, and every time I left, I wanted to stay. Um, and um, and even in this moment, um, there are ways when I realize the kind of revolutionary work that we have to be about in this moment and there's a there's a part of me that is like hungry to be outside um and hungry to be um with my kindred in this movement and there's a part of me that is already weary knowing what the cost of that will be mm-hmm. yeah um you know and what it already is you know and, um and so there there are ways in which that that last verse there which i didn't preach but i only read through verse seven when i preached this text and mm. um i just said i didn't know what to do with verse eight and i and i didn't realize how verse eight was already preaching my reality in that moment because wow. i was bewildered and i i was alarmed and 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 the text almost like says that's okay i mean they, they say this is the shorter ending of mark and so like this might have been the original this is like how the movie ended you know yeah nobody right. wants the movie to end that way but right. you know it leaves you with the reality of life like we that's are right. living we we are people living with the resurrection promise while also standing at the foot of the cross yeah um and so i think for me it's it's been about recognizing that um, that is it, that a part of what I'm called to do in this moment is to help people help people know what it means to stand um, at the foot of the cross and to be vigilant, um, like Rizba was mm. um, when 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 her sons were hung, um, mm. and and to be compassionate, um, like um, like like the disciples were uh, well like, like Jesus was to to to, to John and offering mm-hmm. compassion to, uh, to him and to, and, to, and to his mom um, to be mindful and to be paying attention to what's being said and what's being heard to listen to listen for the good news that's happening outside and that's happening in places that we largely um, don't expect. Yeah. Uh, Dr. George Cummings, my theology professor, um, he always talked about. Um, reverse evangel- evangelism like yeah, what does I, it mean what does it mean for us to go and get the good news that's out there yes. um, and mm-hmm. I, I think that i think that moments of deep bewilderment and trauma are moments to pay attention to where the good news is showing up in the midst of wow. the trauma not yeah. when it's tied in a right. neat bow on easter sunday with lilies and white yeah. robes and you know great choirs and preaching that's supposed to restore the church to the 1950s. Um, right. wow. At least that was, that, was, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was my little dream when I was a pastor, that if I preached the best sermons on Easter, that everybody would come back and, you know, wow. right. we, could make, we could make our budget this year and we could be yeah. a thriving church and, you know, yeah. right. I'd get ridden up as a faithful pastor. I mean, that's yeah. such a challenge, though, to, to hear that um, uh, what the world needs from Christians in this moment in history is not sermons, but solidarity. Right. Yeah, amen. 
Right. To go. That's I mean, how it I was would. thinking as you're speaking, like to this call to go. At, Jesus is going to be ahead of you in Galilee. I mean, and the fact that Galilee, yeah. it's like for most people don't realize like Galilee, that's, that's poor peasants. That's people yes, that are malnourished. That's on the yes. fringes of the system, right? Um, these are the it's folks the that are being made fun of for their accents and for not being able to pay the tithes mm -hmm. and all these stuff. And so it's mm -hmm. precisely in those places where, and Mark decides to end it there, right? That's where you're going to find Jesus, in those yeah. places. Yeah. That's yeah. really powerful. Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking about was the, I mean, which goes back to the ending, that that because, I mean, it's debated among scholars around, like, is it the correct ending? But I agree with you. Like, I think that's, this is how the book ends, right? And mm. it's precisely, um, if that's the case, like this being written around the time of the Jewish Roman wars and the yep. uncertainty that they're living. I mean, this is scary. The whole world is being flipped upside down in other ways that they couldn't really make sense of, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that it can resonate for people who live in uncertain worlds where yes. things aren't stable and don't desire for things to go back to normal, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That this can resonate in a different kind of way, even in the midst of the anxiety and the uncertainties yeah. that you got to mm. work through. Yeah. It speaks, it speaks a truth that is resonant in a moment of great trauma. Yeah. And, that, and that means something. I think about all of the uplifting songs that many clergy tried to sing in the midst of the Ferguson moment and all the disdain and disgust on the looks of young people who were like, really? Yeah. Come on, I am yeah. not feeling that song. Yeah. You know? We need lament, not um, praise. Exactly, like, and yeah. so, and be, and because that's because that's a that's a a way of being in the world, and a way of being in relationship with the holy, a way of being in relationship with one another that is so unpracticed in the mm -hmm. church. Like we don't know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. I remember, I, I remember one of my, my my home seminary held a conference once on lamentation, um, and the plan was for the conference to end in silence. Um, and and um, a, a dirge of some sort was sung at yeah. the end, and then there was silence, and we were all, you know, we, we were told that we will end in silence, and then when the when the bell sounds, you you get up from your seats and and you leave, like that's that's it, and um, that's how it was going to end. But one pastor in the back was just like. Mm -mm. This is not how this is supposed to end. And he started saying, I got a feeling everything's going to be all right. And everybody started singing and standing up and singing and shouting. And I was like, we just cannot do this. Like, we don't know. Yeah. We don't know how to do this. Yeah. Uh, like, it, it always has to end. This, and, it's, and it's, I mean, I'm not trying to um, um, be overly critical about folks because what I recognize is that they're looking for the good news. Like this is what yeah. we expect. Like, yeah. And that we're supposed to, like, there's supposed to be some kind of resolution to this story that leaves right. people on an upbeat. Like I, I, I get that whole, I get that whole logic, but we were all clergy in the room. Yes. We were all yeah. people who, who know the truth about life and are supposed to preach the truth about, about life. And there have to be times when we can hold space for this. Yeah. The whole space for this, and that that is spiritual worship, and yes. that that is a that is a sacred act. Um, yeah, so. I, I think of um, Dr. Willie Jennings, and his talk of um, hope is not a feeling; it's a discipline. Yeah. But I wonder for for so many of us um, who have been formed in um, hope being a feeling, uh, which lets us out uh, 
um, and off the hook in terms of it being a discipline, <laughs> that to sit and lament is actually more difficult. And so instead of going to church leaders, it's easier to actually, um, I'm putting my headphones in, I'm listening to Kedrick Lamar because when he says it's going to be all right, he doesn't mean everything's going to be nice. He's, he's naming the realities of what's happening on the streets and, and all the rest, but it is going to be all right. Yeah. Because from Kendrick, people know his context. Um, uh, they know what truth he's speaking from. And it's not niceified and, and it, it's not made palatable and acceptable. It, it feels much more like someone who's speaking from the place of bewilderment and amazement. Not, not somebody who's protecting themselves from bewilderment and amazement <laughs> to make a nice end to the story. <laughs> and so we have a whole generation of bewildered and amazed yeah. Yeah. folk who are yeah. drawn to this because they, they, hear, they hear good news in, in that lament, yes. in, that, in that rage, and, yes. in, and in that fear. Yeah. Um, I think we just don't we don't know in the in the Christian church by and large how to how to hold space for the very real human reality of 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 grief and fear and rage and um, an inability to hold that um, is is deadly um, mm. and I and it's and it's um, and it's particularly deadly for for black folk mm. um, and for and for black men who've been socialized to figure out how not to show any fear, right. any sadness, or any rage. Yeah, wow. that's good. I was thinking, I mean, I know, so like, I was thinking about Barbara Holmes' book, even though she's not really talking about lament mm -hmm. per se, she's talking about like contemplative like practices in the black church. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking like, it's still the, her critique still holds even as it relates to this, right? Um, that there, there are these practices that in some ways did sustain the black church to make it through and we're kind of been pushing them to the side to not create the space for laments and for contemplative practices and to just be and to be present fully in those moments, right? And so I think that um, there's something really powerful about what she says that relates to this as well, yeah. yeah. Now I like to, I like to read her um, and um, M. Sean Copeland mm, yeah. um, alongside, um, Tony Morrison's beloved, mm. um, yeah. and particularly that text, that part in the story where Baby Suggs Holy is in the clearing. Yeah, this is the grandmother of the main character portrayed by Oprah Winfrey in the movie. Um, who and Bea Richards, like one of my favorite um, actors, is standing mm. on the stump, and she's calling all of these people in Ohio on the other side of the Ohio River, mostly people who have escaped slavery and crossed the river who are at risk of being found, right? Um, and deported back to slavery um, and trying to help them um, be, be church, if you will, in the clearing. Mm -hmm. And she calls them and she calls them together. She says, I want you, I want you to laugh. I want you to dance and I want you to cry. And I want, I want the men to do the things that no one expects them to do. I want the women to do things no one expects them. And I want the children to do things that no one expects them to do. I want you to allow who you are to be experienced fully in, in your body, to experience all of these emotions, both joy and peace, but also rage and, and fear, 
right? Yeah. Um, and grief. Um, when, I, when I'm seeing that image and that story um, alongside, um, you know, the, the uh, readings that are about like what it means to have a theology that's enfleshed, as mm -hmm. M. Sean yeah. Copeland talks yeah. about, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and alongside, you know, um, the, the work that Barbara Holmes does to try to explain spiritual practices that come out of our, our tradition, I go, that's, that's, that's what Baby Sucks Holy taught me. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Michael Ray, um, uh, a mate, Craig Stewart in Cape Town, uh, introduced me to uh, Miguel uh, de, de La Torre. De La Torre, yes. And um, he, he was he's like, I've got to read you this. We're having this conversation um, in the midst of some of the things that were going on uh, in Cape Town. And uh, Craig heads up. Um, an incredible team of people at the warehouse, which is a great center for practical liberation theology. Um, and uh, he started reading this poem and I was listening to it and I was like, I've, I've, I don't think I've read this guy, but I've heard him before. And it was, it was on your podcast. It, it was like, and I was like, Oh, that's where, um, and uh, as you were speaking just now, I, I realized, um, and, I just think this is so pertinent how he ends his little um, poem uh, that, that sums up um, uh, this whole work. Do, do you mind if I read that as a way of uh, no, pointing people towards uh, your podcast to go and uh, get more? Because I, I found this so in incredibly helpful yet disturbing at the same time. I found myself right. going, uh, how, how have I cheapened hope um, uh, as a way of uh, getting out of discipleship instead of getting on with it? So it ends with this. So offer not your words of hope. Offer your practices for justice. Shower me not with God's future promises. Show God's present grace through your loving mercy. So when hawkers of hope seduce you to join them, and when the rationalists wonder why your struggle for justice, unwin for justice's unwinnable odds, and when charlatans peddle revelation as revolution, and when a world gone mad questions your very sanity as you respond in confidence and boldness, respond, I am hopeless. And, and the poetics of what he means by hopelessness is yes. um, be faithful. Yes. Yes. Go and be found in the places um, where the, the risen is on the streets. Be faithful, even when it's not winnable, uh, wow. it, even when um, it's not going to draw a crowd. And uh, listening to you reflect um, on this process, I've so enjoyed hearing you giving us the behind the scenes of what went on for you um, yeah. uh, approaching Easter. I just think that's so helpful for so many people. And I, I know mm. that um, people are going to listen to this and just be like, that's incredible I, I hear that call from, from you um mm. get out of the building get out. go be faithful yeah. um if people need to call that hopelessness so be it but that's what the discipline of hope actually is yeah and and we come from a people who have journeyed through oh. hopelessness yeah and who have thrived and flourished um in hopelessness Wow. And um, I, I appreciate so much Miguel's contribution to this conversation. And uh, I, please send me that poem. I'm interviewing my boss, Reverend Alvin Herring, huh. Faith in Action, tomorrow. Oh, and um, if you say hope is like a bad word to him, uh, 
So he will appreciate he will appreciate that poem. And uh, I'm gonna ask I'm gonna ask him about this tomorrow. So well, um, please, please send that along. I, I will. Lisa Sharon Harper. Um, uh, she was like, "Hey, I put the start of the poem through um, a translator. Uh, do you know you're swearing at the start of it? What you shared on?" <laughs> on I was like, okay. uh, "No español. No, I didn't." Like, <laughs> I learned Japanese at school, so that's not helpful <laughs> when it comes to Spanish. Um, yeah. I'll send that through. Yeah, for sure. All right. It's been good. This has been really good. Um, can we, well, number one, can you share a little bit with the audience? Not everyone necessarily is going to know about what faith in action is. I want to just yeah. describe some and, sure. and how maybe potentially depending on where they're at, how they might even maybe congregation might be able to get involved. Sure. So we are um, really an international organization with um, made up, we're a network of faith-based community organizations who engage in a practice of community organizing um, that is rooted in, um, that is rooted in congregations primarily and informed by multiple faith traditions and spiritualities. We work on all kinds of issues from access to healthcare to uh, reform of uh, education, uh, from gun violence and mass incarceration to immigrant rights. And um, we are in uh, four countries and 25 states in the United States. We were founded in Oakland, California, about 50 miles north of where I am now, um, by a Jesuit priest, Father John Bauman, who still runs our international project, which has um, work in Rwanda, in Haiti, and El Salvador. And um, we work with thousands of congregations and clergy across the country, uh, teaching them about our practice, um, equipping them for leadership around a variety of, of, of issues in the, at the local level, but also at the state and national level as well. For the past uh, 20 years almost, we've been um, a national network that has sought to have impact at the federal level in addition to the work, in addition to the work that local organizations do, do on the ground. And um, we've become, you know, uh, we've become one of the largest um, organizations of our, of our type um, in, in this country and um, have become a very multi-faith um, mm -hmm. in our representation. Uh, Christian tradition is still the dominant tradition and uh, we're still learning like what it means to um, really uh, be revolutionized by the wisdom that comes from, from other traditions and mm. think about how we use our language and, and so forth. And um, also in the past, in the past uh, 15 years, um, our journey around race, which started as a, um, a question about diversity, like who, who's in the room, became a deeper question about what is race and how does it operate? And then yeah. what does it have to do with organizing? And then how does that inform how we analyze the social context to how do we get justice for everybody to Ferguson to prophetic resistance bias? Like we've been mm -hmm. on this interesting journey of finding ourselves uh, being a community organizing network that just did good community organizing to really seeing ourselves as a racial justice organization to now what our executive director Alvin Herring calls a race and faith solidarity movement hmm. um, in the world. And um, you can find us online at faithinaction.org. Uh, and um, I've been a part of this organization's work for almost uh, 25 years. I started oh, wow. uh, as a seminarian serving a congregation in Oakland and uh, then later as a pastor in San Jose. 
um, and then joined the national staff about 12 years ago. Brilliant. And I, my, my connection through um, Faith in Action is through what I'm sure you know is Power Interfaith, uh, yes. which is yes. in Philly and expanding into Central PA. And so they kind yes. of, uh, I say they kind of followed me because when I was in Philly, um, I wasn't as involved that I kind of went to some stuff, but I wasn't really like, organized with them, but moved to, to um, Harrisburg for teaching. And at the same time, they were expanding into Central PA. So it's been good yeah. um, working more closely with them. Um, yeah, I, I talked I talked to Bishop Royster just today, and I forgot to tell him I was going to be on this podcast with you. Because when I when I think of you, Drew, I think of I think of PA, I think of Philly, mm-hmm. and um, I, I, it, it didn't occur to me to tell him that. But I have to tell him that I had a chance to. No, I don't know him today. as well because he wasn't. Okay. Um, he, I know he used to be, and then he stepped away, and then now he's back again. Now he's and, um, back. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. So and well, that's. Well, we would it be about. surprised though if he knows who you are? There yeah, hasn't been anybody who I haven't talked about. You know, oh, trouble I've seen. Oh, trouble yeah, I've right. seen. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Particularly at at this moment, um, uh, it, it's been amazing. Uh, because of the podcast being tagged in um, uh, so many people going, what resources are there to understand what's happening? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's an important text. Michael Ray, this has been fantastic. W- would you Thank pray you. for our listeners as um, uh, we close up? Um, this is your sure. opportunity for an altar call. <laughs> the doors <laughs> of the church are open. <laughs> um, oh. But if, if uh, yeah, we just really appreciate because we're, we're so aware in so many different contexts, whether it's what's happening in the US at the moment uh, or what's happening in Hong Kong, uh, or, or what's going on uh, for people because of uh, COVID-19 worldwide. Um, it's a moment that, that needs people who are attentive and uh, who, who are out there um, instead of waiting in the four yeah. walls. So we'd love your yeah. prayer. Sure. Can I pray as I always pray? Please do. All right. We'll see if Zoom likes this. <laughs> see that candle burning dim. Patience that has now worn thin. Revive your people once again. Lord, bring us new life. We're your children growing cold. Fearful hearts that once were bold. So as you've done in times of old, Lord, bring us new life and breathe on us, breathe on us. Holy Spirit, we, we invite, breathe on us, breathe on us, 
Lord, bring, bring us new life. Holy One, with this weary heart and with our weary hearts we pray that indeed as in times of old, in times of bewilderment and amazement and fear and rage, you would breathe on us and bring us new life. Amen. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.